0: listening to the Penteract Poetry Podcast, hosted by Anthony Etherin. Hello, welcome to episode 5 of the Penteract Poetry Podcast. My guest this time is composer, poet and YouTuber Samuel Andreev. I met up with Samuel a few weeks ago to discuss the relationship between poetry and music, the status of both art forms and the ways that social media have affected them. I began by asking Samuel, what led him to poetry and music?
1: Well, it's not exactly something that I decided to do. I think that if being a musician or a poet amounts to a decision, then it's probably better to do something else. It should be something that attacks you, where uh, sort of independently of your will, you end up having to do it. Because any reasonable person would do something else, uh, and that's sort of what happened in my case. it was a it was a compulsion to do this, and uh, certainly not uh, a decision or an act of will. And I think that it it would have been extraordinarily difficult for me not to do it. And in fact, if i if I hadn't done it, I think it certainly would have uh, destroyed uh, a very large part of who I am. So, it was uh, a product of absolute necessity on every level.
0: Do you think that if you had a, a more traditional job, you'd spend too much of your spare time doing creative pursuits, that it meant that you couldn't really function in your normal job?
1: I've never been able to do ordinary jobs. Um, I've, ma- I've made a couple of stabs at it, but not with a great deal of conviction and uh, with less than extraordinary success I have to say so I don't seem to be cut out for that sort of thing um, but what I have done is I I, ma- I made a deal with myself very early on that this was what I was going to do and that I was going to go in I was going to go all in so I would put everything I had into it and uh, marshal all the resources I could possibly come up with in order to make a very serious, attempt at doing this and obviously you you realize that you're taking a risk when you do that because attempting to create a life for oneself as an artist is a very high risk scenario but it seemed to me that the risk of not doing it would be far greater so i i decided to uh, to to put everything i had into it but yeah no i i, I can't i can't do uh, I can't do anything else, really. I ha- I sort of have to do this. And so I just decided that given that, given that I have to do this, and given that it's difficult for me to do anything else, then the best scenario for me, the best option that I have, really, is to do it professionally and and try to do that well.
0: Yeah, I and mean, it is a risk. I You know, I'm... Similar to you, I did that. And I got to the age of about 26 and I realized nothing at all was happening for me. And I thought, my God, I've completely ruined my life by doing this. <laughs> I, I should be working in a bank.
1: <laughs> What's well, happened? Yeah, you know, the, 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 first, the first 10 years were the hardest in that respect. I can, I can relate to what you're saying because my my 20s were difficult in that respect, definitely. Because when you're in your 20s, you're not really confirmed uh, either professionally or socially in many respects, too. Nobody really knows what to expect from you. Nobody is you know, going to uh, uh, assume automatically that you're going to be a success at, at what you're trying to do. Um, and it's very easy not to take seriously the ambitions of a young artist because the fact is statistically most of them do eventually stop doing it and uh, end up doing something else instead. And there's lots of reasons why that happens. It's, a, it's an incredibly difficult um, field to pursue. Um, there, are, there are excellent reasons not to do it. Uh, it's, it's something that um, carries a certain stigma, I would say, uh, for a lot of people. Uh, in other words, the, the idea that, that being an artist somehow is not a, a serious thing or it's, it's not something uh, that you would do you know, past adolescence, for example. Or it, it's something that only an extremely tiny minority of people can can succeed at, and the rest should you know probably not try all that hard. So, uh, but so the tw- the twenties were difficult. But what kept me going was a couple of things. First of all, the the knowledge that this is really what I'm best at. I mean, I, I figured that out quite early that this was this was the thing that I am here to do. To the extent that I am here to do anything, and. Uh, Uh, Secondly, a a kind of, um, you might say, foolish stubbornness, which, you know, that that can be a a terrible quality to have, depending on the circumstances. But in my case, it, it meant that I never really questioned certain axiomatic presuppositions about what I was doing with my life. And just assumed that if I applied myself enough to this one thing, and did it seriously, and uh, sort of chipped away at it every day, that eventually it would yield. And that is, in fact, what happened. Uh, And that that belief or that that sort of foolish uh, stubbornness kept me going through some very difficult periods.
0: So you say that there was, uh, you thought it was what you were best at. Did you also think that you were better than other people at it did you do you have to have that idea that that you could look at what other people are doing and think well no I, I actually do i belong here i can do this
1: i didn't think of it in terms of what other people were doing i i really focused on my own capacity for development in the sense of uh here's what i'm currently able to do here's what i would like to be able to do here's the gap between those two things and how do i fill that gap and how do I keep developing, as as much as possible, uh, and sort of keep acquiring skills and uh, and going in deeper and getting better at what I'm doing, and that sort of thing. Uh, that was really my focus. I suppose it did it did dawn on me at a certain point that this was not a, a let's say a typical thing to do. Although that 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 didn't it wasn't obvious to me right away though because. Um, when I was six or seven years old, I, I distinctly remember that I I used to spontaneously invent melodies and sing them to myself and, and sort of invent little songs and things like that, which is something that that toddlers do. But I think beyond a certain age, a lot of people just either don't do it, they don't have the capacity to do it, or they, they don't feel like doing it or whatever, but they, they just don't do it. So uh, I just assume that everybody made up songs, but I think that's actually not the case past a certain age. Um, and I suppose when I hit adolescence then it, it became fairly clear that there was a, a a gulf between what my ambitions were and what my interests were and what those of my peers were uh, when I was in school but there again it, it wasn't something that I particularly was either disturbed by or interested in I just acknowledged that there were uh, things that were very important to me, that weren't necessarily very important to other people. But I was still friends with them, and it was fine. And uh, and I sought out the company of people who were knowledgeable about the things I was interested in, which were poetry, uh, music, painting, etc. And I uh, sort of cultivated relationships with those sorts of people. And when you do that, it's no surprise that your social circle expands, and you eventually meet like-minded people. And things sort of go from there, and then you you end up with a situation where your your life is sort of centered around that activity to such an extent that it can it can start to seem as though this is uh, at least a normal thing within your context. And um, it it's, it did appear that way for a long time because I also went to an alternative high school in in Toronto, where there were a lot of people who were either Sincerely interested in culture or at least pretended to be interested in in culture and So uh, for most of my adolescence, I was in kind of a a situation socially at school, etc Where there were actually a fair number of people around me that took this sort of thing seriously. I Guess I've been very lucky in that respect.
0: So you were in high school bands, for example.
1: I wasn't really in high school bands, um, I had a band of sorts, but it didn't really get going until after I'd left high school. So uh, the the time when I, I was in high school, I was making uh, large numbers of home recordings. This became something of an obsession between when I was maybe, I suppose I probably started when I was about 14, and this went on until uh, until I was 21, I guess, which is when I recorded the last uh, album that I did when I was still living in Canada. So for six or seven years, I was a singer-songwriter, and I took it very seriously. I would probably wrote about 150 or 200 songs during that period and recorded them at home and uh, sort of amassed a very peculiar uh, assortment of instruments that I used uh, to make these recordings. And I'm not making any claims as to the uh, in, intrinsic worth of these songs necessarily, but they were incredibly valuable to me in terms of developing the range of things that I could do. Uh, and they taught me a very wide range of practical skills at the same time because I had to learn to play a, a wide range of different instruments. I had to learn how to record. I had to learn how to work with other musicians and to and, uh, explain to them what my intentions were, and communicate, and I had to learn how to put an album together, how to release it, all of that, and I, I figured those things out. Uh, and I'm, again, I'm not claiming that I figured them out with brilliant success, but I figured them out at a basic enough level at least, so that I was able to keep doing it, and that was incredibly valuable. And all of that was 100% self-directed. There was really, uh, I didn't have, uh, you know, much of a much of an infrastructure beyond. You know, myself and and a few friends that that helped out with recordings until when I was uh, probably, you know, it's it's hard to pinpoint these things, but I think when I was 16, maybe I made the acquaintance of a very fine Canadian poet by the name of Steve Venright. That's V-E-N-R-I-G-H-T. And uh, Steve, for reasons known only to him, encountered me at this young age and felt that there was something worth uh, supporting. And uh, he heard some of my early songs and uh, decided to to help me continue and uh, and was immensely helpful in producing um, several recordings with me, which he then released through his own label, which is called Torpor Vigil Records.
0: So this is something you you have been doing your whole life. Then you can be, remember being ah four or five years old and and messing around writing songs. Yeah, I I had a keyboard that i could play about four notes on and i managed to write lots of songs just using that around that age another thing i did i used to design album covers again at probably about seven years old i used to design album covers and write down the songs even though the songs weren't written
1: <laughs> so just make up
0: titles and do it. did you do that or is that just a completely you know what i did the same thing that, to do
1: i did that too i did yeah. that too yeah that's funny well, <laughs> um Yes, I used to do that. I have actually, I still have them. I have uh, notebooks filled with uh, projects for songs, and I would write out the titles, uh, and I would decide what the running order would be: uh, side A, side B, and so on. And uh, yeah, (laughs) that's actually actually quite funny to hear that somebody else did that as well.
0: I found some the other day, and one of the titles was uh, a song called "Doctor Metal," (laughs) song version. The, the oh, long the, version of Doctor Metal.
1: Yeah, see, I didn't, I didn't come up with anything quite as arresting as Doctor Metal, but I, re, I, I recall <laughs> when I was fourteen, uh, I wrote uh, what I, what in my mind was a, was an epic uh, experimental poem called "The Brief Evening," and uh, it was one of these things. Um, it's it was good like a. <laughs> I, I still can't can't fathom exactly what what this was meant to point to. Um, but I think it's, it's a very fine example of and um, uh, and sort of an adolescent cartoon version of what um, experimental poetry is meant to be. So um, anyway, I, I was I was writing poetry throughout this entire period, starting from when I was about thirteen, and so the music and the poetry were things that developed simultaneously, and with very little of a boundary between the two, I would say.
0: Well, when I uh, when I approached you about doing this podcast, I said it would be good to discuss poetry and music because they're so closely related, and you said uh, they're the same thing, Mm -hmm. which sounded quite quite a bold statement to me. I can't for the life of
1: yeah, I I do believe it. I I can't. I really I I I can't for the life of me. I mean, there's way more points in common than differences, substantive differences. So, uh, and, and certainly having. Invested profoundly in in both, um, they uh, they they seem very very close to me. Uh, you know, when when you, when you're a poet, you're concerned with rhythm, you're concerned with meter, you're concerned with sound, you're concerned with meaning, uh, you're concerned with structure, you're concerned with pattern, and these elements are all present in music as well. I would say that perhaps one slight difference is that when you're reading a poem. You know, reading is a very interesting act, especially with regards to poetry, because I don't know how other people read poetry. But in my case, it's very rare that I will read it uh, starting from the first word all the way to the end and without any repetitions, just sort of read one line, read the next line and so on and so on, like the way sort of a, a robot or a machine might might scan a text. Um, what I will tend to do is, is read a line and then stop and then I, I might read it again. And then I'll think about it, and then I'll read the next line, and then I might skip ahead, and then I might go backwards again, and then I might compare this line with the line that I read three pages ago, and so on, and I'll sort of zigzag through the poem, and I might do it uh, in such a manner that the, the the temporal flow of the poem is it's constantly speeding up and slowing down or stopping, uh, so in other, it's, it's anything but a straight line, and in music, I mean, when you're when you're an audience member sitting and listening to a piece, you are a prisoner in a certain sense of the necessity to hear the piece unfold in real time, right? You you, you can't really uh, stop and and pause over a passage and, and hear it again. You can you you sort of can in your in your mind's ear, so to speak. But uh, during the act of performance, you you sit down, the piece starts, and then you have to wait for it to finish. Uh, where it gets interesting for me in, in musical terms, and it's the same in poetry also, is that I often have the sense that the, the real uh, sort of mental work, so to speak, of engaging with the poem or with the piece of music occurs afterwards. It occurs after you've read the poem. It occurs after you've listened to the piece. And it becomes a, a, a kind of potential landscape within your mind that you can revisit and you can contemplate and you can you can see it as a thing that you can engage with uh, without the necessity of actually sitting there and you know reading the words or sitting there and listening to the to the sounds unfold across time uh, it becomes a an almost atemporal thing and that's for me the point at which it becomes really exciting i would hesitate to generalize about other people's experiences listening to pieces of music partly because in, in the course of the work that I do with, with YouTube, but I also do a lot of public speaking, and I, I've been doing a, a, a tour around France meeting high school students and talking to them about, about what I do. And what I've noticed, actually, is that no two people do listen in the same manner. Uh, there are certain generalities, you can say, which is that I, I think that one thing that a lot of, uh, let's say, non-professional musicians have have trouble with is that it's it's difficult for them to understand a piece of music in terms of its being a trajectory, or in terms of its having a trajectory, which is to say that the piece starts somewhere, it takes you on a particular journey, and uh, there are stops along the way, and it has the landscape has features, and uh, and then you end up somewhere else at the time that the piece is over. In other words, I I can I can see a piece as a kind of well. I could conceptualize it either as a piece of architecture, as a, as a kind of a, a static uh, visual design, but I can also imagine it as a landscape through which you travel. And uh, whereas I think that a lot of people don't uh, necessarily encounter a piece of music as being a, a, a journey or as being or as having a trajectory. Rather, uh, they will pick out individual moments and they'll say, well, I enjoyed the flute solo or that was really cool when the, the tom-toms started playing. Or uh, I really, you know, that was so cool when the when the double bass started doing that, whatever. In other words, they'll pick out individual moments that they noticed and that they found striking, but they won't connect them to each other in terms of an overall uh, trajectory. So that's one thing that I've noticed. But beyond that general point, people do listen in surprisingly varied ways.
0: Because I wonder how that applies to poetry then. As a poet, I, I do worry that there'll be a line in one of my poems that ruins it, the whole thing for everybody, you know. You can't have one bad line because it'll ruin the whole piece.
1: It's the same in stand-up comedy in the in the extent that you're only as good as your worst line. I think that's true in poetry as well. And uh, one thing I've mentioned before is that I think that if you if you want to well, anyone who aspires to be uh, a serious composer or a poet I think should listen to the masters of stand-up comedy because the the best ones are they'll knock your socks off they're they're amazing like they can go for an hour not make a single mistake have perfect timing incredible delivery the whole thing will be so funny that you almost can't stand it and there won't be a single bad line anywhere and the, and it's like that's something that a composer should aspire to you should be able to write a piece that is so tight in which every element is so necessary that it's just like it's an absolute pleasure listening to it from beginning to end and there's not even a second where you don't feel fully engaged with it now obviously that also presupposes a kind of ideal listener but i think that that is something to aim for and i certainly also think that it's something to aim for in poetry you know it it should be gripping it it shouldn't be a slog and a lot of poetry is a slog
0: yeah i mean this is why i lean towards formalism because really the, the parameters are set out for you you know you have to you have to hit this mark and this mark and this mark and then uh, you you'll even have in in some forms like the triolet form, which is one of my favorites. You really don't have that many words to write, so mm-hmm. so you can really focus on get getting each word right.
1: Well, one thing that was I think quite important in terms of uh, shaping my sensibility when I was growing up was I was very uh, enthusiastic about about uh, about uh, cartoonists and and comic strips, especially newspaper comic strips. And something about the constraints involved in producing them, I honestly, I didn't care about whether they were funny or not. In fact, the, the, the jokes were completely, you know, uh, of, of almost no interest generally. But I loved the, the feeling of rhythm, uh, the necessity of uh, extreme uh, compression, the need to create these almost iconic visual vocabularies in which uh, a, a very simple symbol or a squiggly line or a dot can take the place of you know, a much more complicated visual marker. And uh, it, taking all of these elements that are hyper-compressed and putting them together into something that that can carry some kind of meaning or emotion, I found actually extraordinarily impressive. And one of the most extreme examples of that sort of compression are the comics that you would get wrapped around bubblegum, you know, Bazooka Joe and, and those sorts of things, and which are objectively some of the worst comics in the world. Um, they're kind of hilariously... Awful, but in a, in a way that I actually found quite stimulating to to contemplate. And uh, in those, you would have uh, you know maybe three panels at the most, and maybe 15 words, something like that. I mean, it was completely telegraphic. It had to be something that you could consume in one second, and uh, and you know and that would be it. And I, I actually have a, a great deal of affection for those sorts of formats, where it's like instantaneous message delivery, instantaneous gag delivery, or whatever it might be. And it has to work. It has to hit its target. And, uh, and you know you don't have any room to fail. So that's something that I, I still bear in mind when I'm writing my music today.
0: In the second podcast, I talked to uh, Stephen J. Fowler. And we had a conversation where we, we both expressed our awkward relationship with the term avant-garde and I suppose with being experimental in, in general. Uh, what, what do you think of that term, avant-garde?
1: It's a difficult question to answer because the term avant-garde means a lot of things to me simultaneously. In, in a musical context, I suppose it's hard for me not to associate it with uh, the immediate post-war period in Europe. And uh, it's a it's a term that that really points to a very specific historical period, and I don't think we're in that historic moment anymore. I think that uh, what's what's happening now in in composition is is very very far removed from that. And the, one of the sort of central ideas of the avant-garde is is the notion that uh, y- you are doing something that is sort of exploring new territory, and uh, you're sort of positing a, uh, a dialectic between what's already been done and what is, is yet to be done, and you're sort of uh, exploring the, the the frontier land, so to speak. I, I think that's basically what any creative artist does. So yeah. if, for me, you know, a, a genuine uh, act of artistic creation involves, as a matter of course, exploring new territory. So uh, to that extent, I suppose I'm an avant gardist But... In terms of the, let's say, well, uh, it, it ha, this really has to do with the, the associations that this term has historically. And in terms of music, it's, it has to do uh, certainly with, a, with the reaction to romanticism, with a, um, a desire to enter into a, a sort of deliberately conflictual relationship with the audience uh, to do things That would um, that would be shocking. That would cause uh, an upset, and so on. And uh, those have never been major motivating factors for me. Obviously, I prefer that my pieces elicit a strong reaction, because there's there's nothing worse than a sort of lukewarm reaction to to a piece of art. It's like why why even bother? If it's just like uh, a kind of you know if it was just another another thing to trip over in the world, then you're you're better off doing something else, I think. so it, it needs to it needs to elicit a strong resonance, a strong reaction. Um, I remember there's a comment that uh, when the Velvet Undergrounds first album came out, it sold very few copies, but every, everybody who bought a copy went out and started a band. I think that's the 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 best compliment an artist can have if it it wants you if it makes you want to do something in response, if it makes you want to make something yourself, that's an extraordinary compliment. Um, yeah. so it, it should be productive in that sense. This is a very long winded uh, uh answer to your question about the avant garde, uh, I, I would certainly never describe myself as an avant garde artist.
0: Yeah, I think where I ended up thinking about this was uh, avant garde works exist, but I'm not sure avant-garde people do I don't I don't think of myself as an avant-garde artist because as much as I will experiment with lots of things and try to come up with very new things things no one's done before at the same time I'm just as happy writing a sonnet a very very traditional poem
1: that's partly a question of context. You could argue that writing a sonnet today is is a somewhat pro- provocative act uh, oh, yeah. in, in relationship to what uh, what's going on in in the vast majority of the poetry world. Um, the other point I would say about that is that a lot of composers uh, who are thought of as as being sort of hardcore revolutionary slash avant-garde figures, uh, it, you know if you if you if, if you uh, uh, engage deeply enough with their work, and and read their letters and read their biographies and so on. It's very rare that you'll find a figure who actually thought of themselves as a revolutionary or thought of themselves as an avant-garde uh, artist. In in most cases, they actually thought that what they were doing was completely normal. Uh, and I find that actually to be incredibly interesting. In other words, uh, they would think, well, this, this is, it's not that it's avant-garde. This is just, this is normal. This is what you would expect to happen uh, given the particular Cultural moment, given the things that have happened before. Uh, obviously, this is you know a direction that that you would explore. Uh, with without a sense of you know I, I'm being revolutionary. It's just this is a, a completely normal reaction to to this particular moment in history. Uh, and that just comes back to the the, uh, the Ezra Pound quote, which I which I like, which is that uh, the artist is the antennae of the human race. In other words, that the, the artist is uh, just sort of. Picking up on things that are there, they're they're there in plain sight for everybody to see, to see uh, but that everyone isn't necessarily noticing as being potential uh, uh, agents uh, of, of expression in the world, and uh, and picking those things up and, and amplifying them and and putting them into a kind of a sensual form so that you can engage with them immediately.
0: I think one one of the problems with the idea of uh, avant-gardism is that it is such a 20th century thing, it almost suggests that there weren't experimental artists before then.
1: Of course, I mean, Bach was experimental. Uh, uh, Mozart created experiments. Uh, There are experiments uh, all throughout the music of of Haydn, uh, all throughout uh, the music. Beethoven is just one gigantic experiment from beginning to end. So like when you when you when you consider the the history of, of composition, it's it's hard to think of a major figure uh like a really major figure who, who wasn't experimental to the tips of their fingers
0: i'm glad you mentioned bark because there was a tweet you did i think it was about two years ago now which i loved where you you found a definition of postmodern music and you, you've shared it and with the comments all of this could be applied to bark I think, you know, I'm with you on this. I, I don't know what postmodern music is, if it's anything. Yeah,
1: yeah I, I don't either. I actually, I bought a book about the topic because I thought maybe it would provide some enlightenment because th- these are terms that that are thrown around. This is a piece of postmodern poetry. This is postmodern painting. This is postmodern a uh, piece of music and so on. Um, it's extremely rare that, like, you know, you ever see anybody be actually cornered and asked to, uh, specify precisely what they mean by postmodern, especially with regards to composition. Um, and so, I, I got a book on the topic, which is called Postmodern Music Slash Postmodern Thought. I believe that's the title. And uh, leafed through it, and the and the introduction was hilarious because it actually uh, it actually declined to define the very topic of the book itself. In other words, I, I think the the very opening phrases in the book was. Uh, it is impossible to define postmodern music or something like this, (laughs) which is uh, an inauspicious start for uh, a book that claims to be about that topic. Um, And then it went on to provide a a long sort of laundry list of qualities that it felt uh, postmodern music uh, needed to exhibit. Uh, Well, also sort of there's a lot of hand-waving and, well, of course, it's not an exhaustive list and many of these qualities won't be present and so on. and uh, what it seems to have had to do with uh, was um, sort of willingness to take uh, elements from the past and and recombine them was was one aspect. Um, which every and, artist does. Which every artist does, like I- I admitting for a kind of um, non sort of heterogeneity in terms of the elements that go into the work. I'm trying to use of quotation, um, mixing of high and low, and these sorts of things. And like, <laughs> it was an absurd list because all these are these are all things that Bach did, you know. Uh, so, I, I I'm I'm fairly convinced at this point that in in terms of composition, it, it really it really doesn't mean anything. Um, there are, there are lots of bad pieces that do those things and do them very badly and in a very obvious way. Uh, where you can sort of figure figure them out in in two seconds, and uh, s- some of those sorts of pieces uh, get labeled as as postmodern, but I mean, uh, to me, they're just they're just bad compositions. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I don't I don't really think it means all that much at all.
0: It's actually very hard to think of any poetry or music, even bad stuff, but, that doesn't to some extent to use most of the things that are in that list you know, good or bad you you're definitely going to be relying on things that, that have been done before and you're definitely going to create something that hasn't been done before
1: well I think it, it might be better it might be more sensible to point out that there was a, a period within high modernism in which music attempted to create these utopian self-contained languages uh, in other words the the piece would establish its own grammar and would adhere to it very strictly and would have a very uh, narrow focus as to what it would be uh, what elements it would be it would be using so you wouldn't have hetero, hetero, heterogeneous elements in a piece like that uh, the piece would be highly self-similar and highly self-contained and highly self-referential and hermetic basically uh, and there were a lot of Thai modernist pieces of music that functioned that way so i suppose on one level uh, you could say that uh, some of the Trends that emerged in composition and starting in the 1970s, let's say, onwards, that did have to do with uh, mixing heterogeneous uh, elements in a composition, mixing high and low, and all that sort of thing. I I suppose you could argue that that's new with respect to the, you know, actually quite short lived period of high modernism as it existed in the composition world. But that's to ignore the entire rest of music history. (laughs) So, I, I suspect that yeah, the the, the postmodern music idea arose uh, in in sort of in reaction to the perceived dominance of the high modernist style, as it existed in composition for let's say maybe thirty years.
0: Yeah, but I, yeah, I didn't buy
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's 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 not it's not convincing. It's not convincing. And, and look, these are these are. They're trivial questions, because uh, I think it, like an artist that that is is doing something with real engagement and is actually inventing something uh, is it, not going to have a lot of time for labels, generally speaking. So it's yeah, it's like, it. it's
0: like the avant-garde thing, isn't it? it? it's It's useful if you can find it useful, but otherwise there's no need.
1: Yeah, I would agree uh, with that.
0: But so anyway, what we call avant-garde. So let's stick with the label while it's useful. Uh, I'm interested in in, uh, something you've done a a video on, which is how close popular music and avant-garde or art music have been in the past and how how that relationship has changed.
1: Yeah. One thing that uh, I think is incredibly important throughout the classical period, the Baroque also... And to some extent, in Romanticism, uh, is the the presence of a of a sort of a subterranean layer of the vernacular that that seeps through into this sort of elevated art music realm. And you can't really have one without the other. I mean, they they exist in this interesting sort of symbiosis, which is to say that uh, the the basic rhythmic patterns that you get in almost all classical music are derived from dances and the, the dances are not sort of uh, I mean, these are, these are real dances like things that you would theoretically dance to. Uh, and that whole rhythmic language comes from there. The, uh, the melodic content of a lot of classical music is also fundamentally popular in character. What is maybe not popular is the, the sort of complicated developments that exist in that music, the uh, often quite sophisticated harmonic trajectories and uh, and sort of the counterpoint and the way that different layers are combined in a piece and the dialectical uh, dimension of, of classical music where you have sort of multiple opposing themes or harmonic regions that enter into a dialogue with each other and all of, all of these sorts of elements are, are not popular elements, but but there are also a lot of Uh, sort of materials directly stemming from vernacular music that are present in it. And this was just a sort of normal state of affairs. Uh, Certainly Bach uh, quoted popular tunes in his music, uh, and he used um, Lutheran hymn tunes throughout his entire career as the basis of his cantatas, his, uh, his liturgical music, his organ music, all sorts of things. So, I mean, this was the equivalent of sort of popular everyday songs that everybody would know. Uh, and he would weave these into the most ridiculously sophisticated uh, feats of contrapuntal virtuosity that you can imagine. I mean, these are just sort of spellbinding accomplishments, but that use these sort of very humble everyday materials as their starting point. And I find that just uh, extraordinary that, that he that he did that this started to change towards the second half of the 19th century where you started to have uh, a much wider gap between the popular and the sort of art music circles. And particularly with Wagner, uh, you, you start to get a kind of a irreconcil- irreconcilable breach between the two, where on the one hand uh, sort of popular music no longer wants anything to do with this sort of, turgid, overly serious, uh, exaggeratedly complicated and thick uh, art music. And on the other hand, this uh, art music that views itself as being uh, sublime and elevated and uh, sort of existing in a a kind of celestial realm uh, far from the sort of muck, and the sort of primordial uh, unsophisticated uh, uh, sort of popular realm. And you, you get this sort of mutual disdain starting to Solidify between these two camps, and uh, this I see as a, a sort of a very unfortunate development in a lot of respects. Um, and somehow this situation became basically normal for uh, wide swaths of the music world uh, well until the 1970s and and beyond. And you could actually argue that for a very large number of composers, it's it's still the case. In other words. There's a kind of disdain for the popular. There's is, is a kind of feeling that this is somehow something that, uh, that should be avoided. Um, and, and a sort of insistence on some kind of aesthetic purity.
0: Certainly in the 60s and 70s, there was an art music influence on some very big commercial artists. Frank Zappa, for example, or the Beatles, in fact.
1: That was an extraordinary time. I mean, it's... It would have been naive to expect that to continue forever, because it's not a normal state of affairs. Uh, one thing that I think is is very interesting: it, it's extremely rare, but there are occasionally there are occasional flashes in music history where uh, where a very elevated, sophisticated style suddenly coincides with a popular style, and it it it's, they sort of collide in this brilliant flash, and they produce work that is simultaneously highly accessible. But also in incredibly uh, sophisticated and, uh, and and sort of technically uh, extraordinary and uh, on many levels, uh, it happened with Mozart. Like Mozart actually created a style that marries the the most sophisticated uh, sort of compositional technology, if you might, if you want to use that term, with uh, the most direct sort of popular expression, and the two coexist in his work. Even Beethoven couldn't achieve that. Uh, there are there are works of Beethoven that are seriously recondite. They're they're difficult. They they really you can't just sort of throw them on and uh, and enjoy them casually. Uh, with Mozart, you have these different levels that seem to exist simultaneously in the same piece. Where on on the one level, it's a, a serious object of contemplation. In other words, you could you could spend a very long time trying to tease out all of the subtleties and complexities all the richness, all of the extraordinary qualities of this work. And you could, you could hear it hundreds of times and, and keep discovering new things in it. And at the same time, there will be an, a level, sort of a level of the immediate account, encounter with the work that is extremely, uh, seductive and appealing and accessible. And that's like a, a kind of a perfect, what would you say? totally unexpected bridging of those two things. Uh, you you see a, a related, although different, phenomenon in the temporary crossing of the avant-garde with some of the popular music artists in the 1960s, as you mentioned. Uh, this is a similarly unexpected, brilliant, short little flash that uh, that had profound reverberations, I think. And that certainly uh, for me were a, incredibly important. I mean there are there are so many examples of this. I mean, you mentioned the Beatles. Um, you know pretty much any track from Sergeant Pepper from Magical Mystery Tour, the White Album has some form of experimental dimension to it or like with with very few exceptions.. Um, uh, something i wonder like, with
0: them if, i think with them maybe it was just a consequence that they really could do whatever the hell they wanted by that point there was no, no i don't
1: i don't th- i don't think that accounts for it because there are lots of people who given the opportunity to do whatever they wanted would produce lots of uh, sort of banal iterations on the same basic patterns uh, you you have to have the capacity for invention and the curiosity to want to try new things um there there are there have been bands who have been in a similar position of like complete uh, uh, economic dominance and and artistic dominance where they could throw their weight around, they could uh, uh, impose uh, uh, demands upon the record labels and and push their vision through. And they ended up doing incredibly banal things. So I think there's a little bit more to it than that. i I do believe that the, the, the interest that uh, John Lennon and 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 Paul McCartney, uh, in particular, had in the avant-garde was sincere. I think that they were quite sincere in in how they engaged with it. Uh, there's there's no reason to doubt that, really. I mean, they were listening to Stockhausen and things like this, and, and taking it seriously, and uh, and produce producing things like uh, Revolution Nine. Um, and that is uh, an absolutely extraordinary cultural moment. It's not just the Beatles. Uh, Mentioned Zappa, there's certainly Captain Beefheart. Uh, you, know, you could you could argue that uh, groups such as the Doors, for example, were doing it in a in a in a in a different respect as well. Uh, there were there were lots of people uh, doing this. I think part of it was also that the music industry, so to speak, was a relatively new thing at that point. And uh, Zappa describes the fact that in the sort of early days of the sort of album industry the pop album industry the executives literally had no idea what would sell and what wouldn't sell what would you know be of interest to to teenage consumers and, and what wouldn't so they would they were just willing to try things uh, the music industry was extremely faddish at that point so you would have these weird trends that would happen and sell a million albums and then you'd pass on to something else there was a kind of a, a spirit of well it's sort of let's try this and, and see what happens and see if it just throw it and see if it sticks to the wall kind of thing. Um, so there was a a kind of a very heuristic kind of experimental approach on not only on the part of the artists, but also the the executives running the labels to, to try these things. Uh, there are all kinds of completely off the wall, one of a kind, you know, unreproducible, you know, <laughs> albums that were produced uh, in, in many different directions around that time Once the industry Started to figure out formulas For success that were you know, Relatively uh, What would you say Bankable, uh, relatively Things that they could be fairly sure would work And fairly sure would not work Things, things started to coalesce around a much Narrower range of possibilities
0: Yeah Well, What about poetry then? in the 60s and 70s record producers didn't know what to do you know, they didn't know what would work so they tried everything but surely poetry is in, in a position to do that now because because nothing is working surely, <laughs> this should be the the heyday for uh, experimental poetry because why not so experimental poetry doesn't sell a lot but neither does mainstream poetry so this should be the time to yeah you'll you just maybe you... see what happens see what works
1: Maybe you can provide some enlightenment for me because I I don't actually understand the mainstream poetry world at all. Like I I understand that, for example, for for poets, it's a big deal to get published in a magazine like the New Yorker. It's a big deal to have a poem in the New Yorker, um. Which I I mean I can't read the poems in the New Yorker. I I I literally after after one line I have to stop. Uh, It's it's like I've never actually found one where I could get past the first line. So uh, there's there's a weird sort of gap in my eyes anyway between the sorts of things that tend to get published in supposedly you know uh, high impact, uh, highly prestigious uh, 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 organs of, dissemi- uh, of, of dis- dissemination, and their their complete lack of interest, at least for me, and and what I would certainly perceive also as being a complete lack of impact on the on the wider culture. Uh, conversely you have poets doing things on Twitter uh, that uh, that are incredibly striking for me and that I would imagine have also uh, at least potentially a, a much wider impact and a much wider readership so I, I can't I can't square the the strange disconnect between the uh, sort of official prestige involved in some of these outlets and just their, I think almost insane irrelevance at the same time. How, how can something be prestigious and absurdly irrelevant simultaneously?
0: it's It's because poetry is unpopular, which means it's very easy for people to uh, take over the poetry world and present uh, the kind of poetry they want to. For often political reasons. Uh, often in terms of uh, of maintaining some sort of uh, status quo. Uh, well, do I go? Do I go on? <laughs> How much trouble should I get myself into? <laughs> but you I mean you're you're right. Uh, certainly that it's it, it's really insufferable poetry that's that's getting the most attention.
1: Well, look, it, it gets it gets the most institutional attention, but that. I think it's important to make a distinction. It's like the the distinction between uh, a, a, a journalist wanting to get an exciting news story into a newspaper, and the editor who determines ultimately what ends up on the on the front page. It's like it, it, it's it's two different things, um, and I I do find there's a there's a there's a weird sort of institutional insistence on maintaining this bizarre uh, status quo of of what poetry should look like. Uh, that is just completely at odds with what you know, certainly any anybody I know, uh, and I know, of, you know a surprisingly varied range of people. What what anybody I know would would be actually compelled by or would actually want to spend time reading. Um, and it it strikes like there there has to be an element of desperation be, behind that. You know this this desperation to maintain at all costs this facade that uh, poetry is this sort of genteel a uh, kind of harmless um, thing that sort of makes you scratch your beard and go, ah, you know, that sort of thing, <laughs> which uh, is the precise exact opposite of uh, what I want poetry to be.
0: What you can take some comfort in is that the existence of things like Twitter and Instagram really annoys these people.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's... <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> Take some pleasure in that.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think Twitter is one of the most compelling and extraordinary uh, innovations that man, mankind has produced in, in, any, in any form <laughs> over over the past 30 years or so. I think Twitter's amazing. Um, and poetry
0: needs it. Poetry needs it because, as, as I said, even mainstream poetry doesn't actually get that much attention.
1: Right.
0: There still is not a lot of exposure for any kind of poetry. So we need things like Twitter uh, and Instagram and YouTube. So there we are. That brings me on to the next topic.
1: Well, yes, I mean, what, what I would say about that, uh, since we're talking about social media versus the sort of uh, standard, uh, uh, sort of officially prestigious uh, organs that exist, uh, I think that if you're, if you're the sort of artist, uh, composer, poet, writer, whatever it might be, who is investing a great deal of energy into sort of trying to force their way through that tiny little narrow door, uh, of uh, maybe getting a piece published in a in a magazine, or uh, you know having a, having a collection be put out by a, a, a major publisher or something like that. Like you, in other words, the, this is like a, a tiny little aperture, and you've got like thousands and thousands and thousands of people desperately trying to squeeze their way through it, and it's completely saturated and blocked, right? And it's like there's there's you have like a one in a million chance that you can even stick your finger through it. Uh, and, and then on the other hand, it's like, if you, if you just like shift your attention five degrees to the left, there's this massive open gate, <laughs> you know, where it's like, anything's possible. It, it's just, a, it just requires just the slightest shift in your attention. And I, I just don't get why more people don't make that shift because, uh, uh Twitter, uh, YouTube, uh, all of these different platforms, if you sort of have even a a, a very modest amount of uh, ability to use these platforms, well, the, the amount of leverage you can get through them is like vastly like several orders of magnitude greater than what you could get. Even if you managed to sort of squeeze through that completely saturated, clogged up, uh, portal, uh, made grubby by uh, untold numbers of people trying to do all sorts of uh, unseemly things to squeeze their way through it
0: well we, we, you know we talked earlier about the risk you take going into this lifestyle and at the age of i found myself at the age of 34 i had about two readers uh, one i was married to <laughs> and <laughs> i'm not in academia so i didn't have that I, I don't live in a big city, so I didn't have that way of getting into any sort of poetry scene. And I certainly didn't know any other poets uh who would, who'd been published. So, you know, I was kind of in big trouble then. So I, I started a Twitter account and it's done huge things for me. So I you know, my own personal experience is that I, I could not have done this otherwise. I could not have got anywhere otherwise. And well, I'm proud to say I've nearly three thousand Twitter followers, but you have how how many YouTube subscribers? Uh,
1: just under twenty seven thousand.
0: okay, so you win. <laughs> but your, yeah, your YouTube channel has been amazing. You must be very proud of that.
1: yeah, I am I am proud of it. I, I think what I'm most proud of is um, sort of reaching people that would not have had the opportunity or the means to discover, some of the things that I talk about otherwise. Uh, the world of contemporary composition is, in in many respects, actually a surprisingly small world, surprisingly incestuous one, and very inward looking a lot of the time. Uh, which is to say that the the prizes that a lot of people will go after are you know the things we've already talked about the sort of major institutional prizes and those sorts of things, which actually have very little impact in the in terms of the real world. Um, and uh, there are vast numbers of people who are actually way more open than you might think than uh, than you might give them credit for who simply lack the you know the 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 opportunity, the sort of context, the sort of base level uh, familiarity or knowledge to engage with these things, but that would happily do so if the bar for entry were made very low. And by making the bar for entry low, what I simply mean is, uh, you know, not asking them to spend money on a concert ticket, not asking them to spend money on a CD, not asking them to spend 30 hours uh, reading a complicated book, uh, but just present in a straightforward manner uh, a compelling case for why it might be worth your time to listen to this or that piece of 20th century music, or whatever it might be. And uh, I started the YouTube channel as an experiment because I, I had absolutely no expectations for it whatsoever. Uh, I had just finished a period of teaching in a, a teaching music analysis in a conservatory in northern France. and so I, I had a certain amount of uh, pedagogical experience that I was a little bit frustrated with because I think when it was at its greatest extent, my class had maybe fifteen students, something like that. So I'd be putting an enormous amount of effort into preparing these lectures and, and doing these complicated analyses of, of pieces of music. Then, you know, maybe there'd be 10 people there that day. And then next week you'd do something else and so on. And it's like, it'd be much better, it'd be infinitely more optimal if uh, these things that I've prepared could be made accessible to a much larger number of people. Because, you know, what's not to discount the role, the importance of of that sort of one-to-one uh, type of education which i, I still think is, is also very important but it just seemed like if you're going to go to the level of effort that I went to in preparing those courses you might as well just try to make it available and, and see what happens so i started making like ridiculously crude like embarrassingly crude videos uh just it was just literally myself this this shows you how how little skill and imagination I had at this point it's just i would I literally just film myself in my office as though I were giving a lecture in a classroom Uh, And on whatever topic and then I would have these completely unedited videos that I had done in one take with the like really lousy Low-quality equipment just throw them on YouTube and I think okay Maybe ten people will watch this and you know, that would be kind of fun Then I'll have doubled the number of people that will have heard this lecture so I did one on the composer Morton Feldman in uh, late 2016 and very quickly, in a matter of a few days, it had something like a thousand views, and I thought, "Well, that's interesting." I was not expecting that at all, uh, and uh, and then it just kept on, kept going from there, and the the views just kept increasing, and it it really did take me by surprise, and it was an indication to me that the in, the level of public interest in uh, compelling, interesting, art. Uh, and, and music, explained in an engaging way, is way higher than we think. Like if if me with my sort of crappy setup, my complete technological lack of sophistication, you know my my naive uh, amateurish attempts at producing videos, with very little effort, can get thousands and thousands of views, then that tells you something. That tells you first of all that the the, the mainstream media are. Uh, completely out to lunch with regards to all of these things uh they don't understand their importance they don't understand how to talk about them they don't think it's important Uh, and it also tells you that uh people are way sharper and more curious and uh more interested in these things than than they get credit for and a lot of the i started i started getting letters from all over the world like literally all over the world the most improbable places uh, uh from people saying that uh these videos had reached them somehow I have no idea how they found them um, that it it, uh, it showed them an entire new world that they didn't know existed and that they were grateful for that and that I just bowled me over I was astounded like here I am just sitting in my office like I would do normally and suddenly I've got the, the entire world sending me letters It was, it was crazy
0: my own personal experiences it's, it's helped me a lot but as you know I'm not I'm not a novice when it comes to music, but I'm also not an expert. So it's very good for someone like me, because I didn't already know a lot of these things that you presented in your videos. I feel like I should have, which is probably a sign that there, there hasn't been enough about it elsewhere.
1: Yeah, there's a kind of vacuum around it. I, I think part of the reason for that is that there is a there is a, a public perception um, that, let's, let's call it contemporary composition, or at least music since 1945, is a subject for specialists or for highly uh, highly specialized audiences, let's put it that way, uh, and that it's a, uh, a complicated, uh, demanding thing that's hard to enjoy and that you need to know a lot about in order to uh, appreciate. And having spoken with large numbers of people who are not specialists, I can say that they often uh, evoke the same... Uh, trepidation around this subject, which is that they're they're concerned that if they go to a concert they will have no idea what they're listening to. They won't know how to judge it. They won't be able to tell if it's good or bad. They'll have no context for it. Uh, and it's very hard to enjoy something if you have no idea what you're hearing and if you, you can't relate it to something else. And uh, and so uh, it's, it just seemed to me that an obvious thing to do uh, would be to sort of create links with things that might already be familiar from other contexts. And, uh, and, and that that very often helps people to uh, sort of drop their inhibitions and just enter into the world of a piece. It doesn't take much. It actually takes very, very little in order to facilitate that uh, sense of engagement. But it was cruelly lacking uh, for a very long time. And part of that is institutional and structural in nature. A lot of it is also, I would say, uh, the result of composers uh, not really knowing how to communicate, or at least communicating in an extremely insular way around what they were doing. Where you would, you would get composers publishing very uh, complex theoretical analytical articles on their own work or on the work of other composers in specialist journals that had very, very restricted readerships, uh, not necessarily presenting the uh, ideas of their work in a straightforward accessible fashion and and not really showing much interest in doing that either. So I, I, this this will inevitably shift with, with uh, you know, given the colossal power of uh, social media platforms.
0: I hope so. And I hope it does for poetry too. Because there is certainly the same problem there. I mean, I, I know poets who don't know uh, the basics of prosody. And if they don't, then I'm sure most non-poets don't. And this is... It's worrying because it, you know if you if you know these things, it does help your appreciation of, of poetry.
1: Yeah. Um, this this is what I've uh, what I've tried to do in composition, uh, and the 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 first video is also I think like I, I didn't I didn't attempt to simplify things beyond a certain limit. In other words, if if a if a piece was complex, I would I would reveal the complexity of the piece. I wouldn't try to you know cover it up and say, well, actually, it's it's you know. It's a very straightforward thing. Here, here's what it is, and here's three sort of zippy lines about the piece that that will allow you to. It's like you know, acknowledging the fact that this is demanding, this is challenging, this takes a bit of an investment, and um, and taking the time to present it properly so that you can actually see what the artist is attempting to do. Um, I think there's there's often a kind of reticence around that, um, around revealing the 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 extent of the Complexity you might say of a, of a particular artistic language uh, Sort of fear that this will uh, Drive people away. I haven't found that to be the case at all. Uh, I, I occasionally get comments on YouTube from people saying things like uh, The pace of this video was too fast for me or there were too many terms I didn't know and I didn't want to have to keep stopping and looking them up or whatever But the vast majority of people that I hear from will say okay there, there might have been a word or two that I wasn't familiar with but you just press pause Type it into Google. <laughs> it's like this is not ro- this is not rocket science. Like anyone can do this. If there's a word you don't know, you know, you Google it and uh, go on the Wikipedia page, whatever. It'll <laughs> so um, and I mean, this is just an everyday skill for for most people. So it, it's it's hard to take seriously the complaint that well, I, I didn't know this, I didn't know this term. Therefore, you know, the video was lost on me. It's like well, you know, <laughs> you can't take that very seriously. Um, and, and most people aren't like that. So uh, it, I find it's better to uh, present the work in a in a way that is um, not sort of dumbing it down, just, just explains what it is. And um, if if people need to listen to the video twice, which some people do, some people listen to them multiple times, they tell me, um, or they need to stop and, and look up the words, that's also part of the engagement. And there's a certain uh, enjoyment, I think, that can come from that.
0: Yeah, it's part of any learning process, isn't it? If you if you're reading a book and you don't understand what's in a sentence, you you read the sentence again.
1: Well, if if I were to try to make a video where every single every single viewer would be guaranteed to understand every word and every term, uh, I, I, <laughs> I'm trying to imagine what that would actually look like. <laughs> it would probably, be longer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it would be it would be it would be comical. Like it, it would be ridiculous. Um, you, like you can't do that. So you, like, the other thing is like YouTube videos are not. It, at least my videos are not addressed to a particular demographic or audience. Like I have, when when I'm making a video, I, I have no idea who I'm addressing. I don't know who I'm, who I'm talking to. The person at the other end could be, uh, you know, uh, a, a professor with fifty years of experience, or it could be a fourteen-year-old. Uh, I have no idea. And um, the way that uh, I, you know, my my approach has has evolved has just been to. Uh, assume that the person that i'm I'm talking to is uh is uh, curious uh that they're reasonably intelligent and uh that they want to know more about the subject and then you just go from there it's going to be uh above some people's heads i suppose but that i think that's that's really a, a minority of uh of viewers
0: i would say so i think if in well, the first place you're going to it then you you have some sort of intellectual curiosity, which probably suggests that you're able to grasp it. One
1: one thing that I, I have noticed on on YouTube, which is, I mean, as a platform, it, it's very different from from Twitter, obviously, in in many respects. But one thing uh, there are, you, you do now have fairly large numbers of professional YouTubers, in other words, people who who make their living primarily through producing content on YouTube and financing it through Patreon, through advertising, and, and through other means. Uh, In order to make a channel like that, you you probably need to have a subscriber base in at least the hundreds of thousands, if not the millions of of viewers, which is obviously far from being my situation. Um, And what tends to happen is when you get a channel to that level, there often tends to be a high level of homogenization of the content. In other words, the videos will rapidly start to look like the videos of everybody else who is pursuing that model. They'll, they'll have approximately the same duration, you know, 10 minutes, around 10 minutes, maybe, you know, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less, but it tends to sort of gravitate around that. Um, they'll be very fast-paced, a lot of really, really fast editing. There'll be a lot of uh, visual uh, graphic elements, uh, animations, uh, and so on and so forth. There'll be a particular style of presentation, a particular type of vocabulary that will be sort of intended to be immediately familiar and engaging and so on and so forth. Um, And I'm certainly not knocking those people by any means uh, Because there I think there's tremendous value to be had from taking uh, complicated subject matter and Simplifying it and rendering it accessible and entertaining. I I have the greatest respect for people who can do that well So this is by no means a critique but uh, That's not the sort of content. I'm interested in producing for multiple reasons. I don't have the patience I don't I'm not interested in spending a lot of my time editing videos I have a lot of other things to do uh, and um, I don't want to compress everything down into a, a five or a ten minute sort of uh, simplified version so my videos are a little bit more discursive they take longer to introduce the subject matter I, I draw other things into it and they're not as tightly edited but that's just a that's just a choice that that's something that I can like doing them that way is something that I can integrate into my life a lot more easily, and it's just uh, what I'm comfortable doing.
0: Yeah, we've been eulogizing uh, social media, but I suppose this is one of the downsides that you can end up chasing, you know, on Twitter chasing likes, or you know, on YouTube chasing listens.
1: Yeah, I think I think that the 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 likes and so on will will come as a result of you know having created something valuable, uh, something that actually improves the lives of people that encounter it. Uh, if you can do that somehow, if you, if you can make their lives a little bit better, uh, I think that has to be the ultimate goal on some level. It's like I, I can I can choose to focus people's attention on something that's actually uh, enriching, interesting, compelling, uh, you know makes your life a little bit better in, in some respect. Uh, and, and that, that's the ultimate goal of everything I do. Um, and uh, if you can do that, then, you know, people, people will tend to respond to that uh, just as a, as a matter of course. So, uh, producing kind of, a uh, you know, hollow content that, uh, that is sort of formatted in, in a way so as to sort of, uh, suck as many eyeballs as possible towards it. Uh, that, that can certainly work in the short term. Uh, I don't know if it's necessarily, a yeah, a good thing for the world, or, or even a sustainable long-term strategy.
0: At least uh, Twitter isn't monetized, which is a bad thing in some ways, but maybe there's a positive.
1: Well, it depends on what you mean by monetized, right? Because uh, these things can have ancillary effects that are very difficult to quantify. So, I mean, you mentioned the fact that you your readership expanded dramatically as a result of Twitter. And um, that you yeah, handle,
0: I, oh, I owe over ninety percent of my book sales to Twitter.
1: Right, right, right. So, so Twitter isn't monetized, but I mean, in in, in your case, like this is a spectacular example of a poet, uh, you know, finding uh, a, a substantial audience as a result of this. And then that audience, you know, their 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 engagement will not be limited to Twitter. They might then go out and attend a reading or buy a book or whatever it might be. Uh, it's it's been. That that's been my experience as well. Uh, so, and it's, it's very very hard to it's very very hard to put terms around that, right? Because the, my the the expansion of my opportunities as an artist, uh, my sort what you might call my uh, uh, my my public profile, it um, the curb of that expansion. Uh, very neatly corresponds with the curb of my uh, engagement with social media. <laughs> so yeah. uh, correlation is not causation, as they say, but in, in this case, it's, it's, it's fairly clear that there's a, there's a connection between the two. And as I got better at uh, working in that world of, of social media, uh, my opportunities continued to expand. Now, I, I, once again, I think if, if the content had not been there, if I had not actually been doing anything particularly uh, engaging or or compelling or valuable, then I don't know if it would have worked. And I, I'm, I'm not ar- making the argument that I've succeeded in that. But uh, to the extent that it has succeeded on a modest scale, I'd like to think that it's because there is some some degree of value in the things that I've put up.
0: Yeah, I'd agree. Thank you. And, uh, <laughs> and, and we will... I, I'll put the link to your YouTube channel in the description here, but I probably don't need to because it's so popular.
1: <laughs> what about poets on YouTube? What's your... Is that is that a, is that a thing? Is that a
0: Not substantial really. outlet? I d- yeah, I don't really see too much on YouTube. I mean, something like what you do would be quite useful, I think. A real uh, analytical approach but you know especially you know going up being selfish and thinking about my interests it would be nice to see some videos that really teach about formal poetry
1: Hmm. yeah i mean in my experience twitter is it seems to be one of the favorite outlets of writers uh it's not so popular with musicians uh very few of my uh, sort of uh, composer acquaintances and friends are active on twitter they, they don't seem to gravitate to that particular platform. Whereas, uh, for me, it's it's become increasingly important. And, I mean, I have, comparatively, quite quite few Twitter followers. I mean, it's, it's not, in terms of numbers, it's it's nothing like the YouTube channel. Uh, but I get uh, tremendous value out of the platform, uh, personally. And uh, I, I suppose it's logical that, that writers would be more into Twitter and, and musicians would be more into YouTube.
0: Well, it's good for poetry, I suppose, because... Poems tend to be short. I've always found the problem with Twitter is that people don't click on links.
1: Hmm. Yeah, the ing- the engagement rate tends not to be as as high as you might think. Yeah, they they have a thing on, on Twitter analytics called impressions, right? You're, you're you're you're. I love that term. It sort of immediately brings to mind a, an image of a, a beam of light flashing across an eyeball or something like this. <laughs> you know. <laughs> It's like, not an actual
0: read; it's an impression. Yeah, a, they, you, someone had the impression of reading it.
1: Yeah, I, I, I read a, a book by Merleau-Ponty on on, uh, on uh, phenomenology, the phenomenology of perception, in which he takes an enormous amount of time defining the term impression as as distinct from sensation and what what these terms actually mean. So it's it's, it's quite funny to to see that uh, the term impression has been sort of turned into a major. Uh, Sort of uh, statistic in uh, in terms of Twitter, Um, as opposed to the engagement, which means you've actually you know you've you've performed an action, you've you've clicked on something, or you've you know (laughs) I find that I find that quite funny. Um, Yeah,
0: I I keep you know being being something of a nerd. I do look at my analytics a lot, but it can be quite depressing in some ways. That my my most successful tweet ever had seven thousand likes, but it had one and a half million impressions. So I, I looked at that, looked at that as a percentage, and thought, well, that's that's no good.
1: Yeah, you know what I think. Uh, I have a theory about this, and this is by no means a tested theory, and it's it's probably wrong. But I, I suspect that people have a kind of a like budget, right? Which is to say that there, there's a certain amount of time uh, that you will uh, uh, press the like button, um, and beyond that point. You know, you you don't want to seem like you're giving it away. Do you know what I mean? Like you don't want to you don't want to sort of dilute your credibility uh, as a person of discernment by liking every single tweet that that comes across your your uh, your feed, right? So, so you might you might like uh, you know as a matter of course without even thinking about it maybe like one percent or less of the of the tweets that you see. Uh, just to just, and there might also be a sort of form of like fatigue because it it, re- it requires a modest amount of physical effort to actually click the mouse or whatever it might be. <laughs> well, it,
0: it, I mean, surely it varies from person to person. You know, some people are very loose with it.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: some, have, <laughs> yeah. some don't like to be liking more than one thing a day.
1: Oh yeah, but I, I I've I've often had the, the feeling like, well, I I don't know, I've already liked five things today. It's like maybe that's. <laughs> maybe that's enough it's like well th- this tweet really is great but i mean yeah but i want to like it like a sixth thing <laughs> so yeah i i wonder if that's the case for other people as well you don't
0: come across as easy
1: exactly <laughs> exactly exactly yeah yeah so um but uh yeah no i i, I think i think what you're doing is uh, is amazing in, in in many respects and and uh, it, it's definitely a a model that I, I hope uh, you know, large numbers of, of writers will take up. I, I think it's probably worth pointing out that there are you, you have to have I think a, an unusual combination of qualities in order to uh, sort of be a successful Twitter poet. Um, like, what, what do you think about this? Like, I, I, I suspect that there's there, there's something to do with the nature of the work. Like, certain poetic forms and approaches will lend themselves to that platform better than others. For one thing. Um, and then there probably has to be yeah how could you i'm
0: not sure that's true because i've seen all kinds of styles succeed and and all kinds fail as well Uh
1: uh-huh well what would like what would be the common points of the ones that succeed if any
0: well it's not so much a stylistic thing but i think you have to be prolific i think because tweet, tweets get buried so quickly they just fall through the timeline and they're gone you have to be doing more than one a week you know you can't mm-hmm. you can't write spend uh, spend hours and hours working on a poem and then post it and, and sit back and wait for everyone to love it because it's going to disappear you're you're, you're going to have to move on and do something else soon
1: i think that's right you know there's there's a there's, there's a guy who produces uh, YouTube videos called Tom Scott I can't remember what his channel is called uh, anyway he's 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 a he's a British guy who uh, I mean he, he always wears a, a red t-shirt so you can immediately identify him on the thumbnails like you always know it's him and he produces videos you know on, on various topics like uh, incredible places and so on and uh, they're they're very thing like they're very catchy little things that you can you can read in two seconds Uh in in the description of the video, exactly what it is, and that's exactly what he'll what he'll do. Uh, um, and there are always these sort of compelling little strange obscure historical facts and things like that presented in a very in- engaging and entertaining way. And he'll do things like uh, he did a video where he traveled to 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 Spitsbergen, in Svalbard, and, and just to see what it was like, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, and one of the things he said because his, his channel has become enormously popular, he's got millions of subscribers, and it's a He's very well-known. But he's he's been at this for a while, and one of the things he said was that he, he just sort of made a game of seeing what could perform really well in social media, uh, just totally experimentally, just without, you know, you just try things. And he said, like, the, there really is no formula except you have to just keep throwing things up, and, uh, and just occasionally, you know, one of them will, will stick, and you just have to just try a bunch of different things and do it regularly because as you said like the 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 turnover rate is just vastly fast right it, it's it's uh things get buried immediately so to, to get any kind of a foothold and and find some kind of a format that is compelling for people and, and that uh, that they'll be interested in following there, there's a certain amount of luck involved a certain amount of persistence that that comes into it um and as you say, that might be irrespective of the style of the genre. It might might be partly a question of timing, it might be partly a question of just regular uh, productivity also, to make sure that there's always something sort of going through the pipeline.
0: Yeah, I honestly think uh, formatting is more important than the style of poetry. If you can write your poems, I try to write my poems in such a way that they always look the same so that that people will notice them. People who have, have got an eye out on me will... Will notice it's one of my poems.
1: That's a form of branding.
0: Yeah. So, you know, the title in, in block capitals and then parentheses and then lowercase one or two word description of the poem. It's, it's, and, and people have said to me that's how they, you know, they, they're flicking through and they notice that format. Of course, that only works <laughs> if they already want to read me.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, wh- one of the things that I probably haven't been very good at personally and that I admire in, in, in other artists. I mean, you, you know Kenny Goldsmith. One of the things that he sort of seems to have figured out very early on in, in his career was uh, he he determined that that uh, he needed to have a, a kind of uh, a log line, like in other words, a, a one line description of the book that would be really simple that anyone could understand, whatever it was. And it could be something like, uh, I retyped a, a copy of the New York Times. Or uh, I wrote down every word I spoke for a week, or whatever it might be, like so, something incredibly simple and straightforward. And then the book literally just fulfills that to the letter. Um, and uh, there, there's something to be said for that kind of approach. I, I really, I, I really actually admire that a great deal. I, I love his work. Um, it hasn't worked out for me really so well in terms of my my production personally because. Uh, I can't summarize one of my pieces in, in one sense.
0: Exactly. It depends what you're doing, doesn't it? There are it certain poems of mine that I could not describe in anything less than a paragraph.
1: Yeah, 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 that's right, yeah. so I, I But at, at the same time, um, I'm conscious of the necessity to... Uh, well, let's put it this way. I mean, I, 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 I do feel very strongly that if you... Uh, Really, really profound things. Really important ideas uh, are things that you have to be capable of explaining simply. And if you can't explain them in in fairly simple and straightforward terms, even if you know, even if it takes a while to get the point across, but if if the terms themselves are not pretty straightforward, then you might not have understood them proper properly yourself. Uh, and so, one of the tremendous values of uh, having this channel and engaging with large numbers of people and so on is that it's it's really forced me to, to do that, to choose my words carefully, uh, think about how I'm presenting things, and, uh, and, and not use any unnecessary complexity or jargon when I'm describing things. I've heard this described as the ELI-5 method, which is explain it to me like I'm five, <laughs> which uh, I, I really like. In other words, um, you know, nothing more than what is needed to get the point across. And if, if what is needed to get the point across is a paragraph, then you give them a paragraph. If it's less than that, you give them a sentence. But uh, minimum necessary complexity, I think, is a good rule of thumb.
0: Yeah, and, and of course, I've, I've been forced into that by Twitter because you have so few characters to work with.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm also interested in uh, like whether the 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 style that you have evolved the, this the sort of the the, the highly constraint based type of writing seems to dovetail particularly well with Twitter somehow in a way that I, I can't quite put my finger on I wonder if this is something you've thought about and if if the, the style of your work has evolved as a consequence of your success on Twitter
0: I post a lot of uh, monometer sonnets and I wrote those because in those this was when we had only 140 characters to work with it's quite an interesting challenge to see if you can actually write us on it that will fit inside the twitter box so that's that's why i started writing them mm-hmm. and i've gone on to write quite a lot of them because i just enjoy it now but i, I initially did it because it was a, a challenge very specific to twitter and i don't know if anyone's noticing probably not but Whenever I'm I'm writing a tweet and I'm close to 280 characters, I always make sure it's exactly 280 characters.
1: Oh, right. <laughs> that,
0: that's just a little game I I play. That no one <laughs> I I wouldn't blame people if they're not aware of it. Why would they be? <laughs> so there are things like that. <clears throat> There's an interesting thing actually. We should talk about this. It's very interesting knowing when you should li- when you should respect. The feedback of your audience and how you should change yourself depending on your audience because on the one hand like a, a, an artist should just do whatever they want and, and you know believe in their vision but it, you know you're still human at the end of the day and you're still going to respond to the way people react to your work and i think that if i write a certain type of poem on twitter and i notice that that type of poem is getting more attention I might be more inclined to continue doing those. We, we can't help but uh, be happy when people respond positively to us.
1: Yeah, of course. I, I think that uh, resonance of some kind is, is, is necessary. Uh, you want the work to exist in the world, right? Uh, that for me has always been primordial. It's, it's extremely important. Uh, and so one of the things that I've you know, put a, a great deal of energy into as a as a composer is ensuring that um, the the pieces that I've wanted to retain, the pieces that I consider to be definitive finished works, they have to be published, they have to be recorded, they have to be performed, and not just performed once, but they have to be performed on ideally on an ongoing basis, ideally by multiple ensembles or performers. Uh, they have to they have to exist as independent entities in the world and and sort of live their own lives, almost as though you were sort of releasing a, a bacterium that that can then sort of multiply itself and <laughs> invade a host species and so on. <laughs> um, this uh, this is this is very very important. And uh, one thing that I've observed is the the pieces that are successful in, in terms of the amount of resonance they seem to create uh or the amount of feedback they get or the the number of performances the number of listeners and so on uh, it's it's very hard for me to predict what those pieces will be and, and sometimes I'll, I'll write something that i i will imagine will get a lot of performances uh, you know a wide listenership and so on and it, and it won't materialize and then something else that i'll think well this is easily my most bizarre and least approachable piece yet uh nobody's gonna <laughs> you know it's gonna have a very restricted uh uh amount of success and then it'll be I'll be proven completely wrong and uh, yeah yeah, it, it's it's very hard for me to figure out
0: it's surprising isn't it yeah the thing about posting poems on Twitter is that because quite often I'm thinking about my next collection I'll, I will post poems that I think are going to go with my next book and then it's quite uh, I'm quite anxious waiting to see how people uh, respond to them I find though that there are some if there's a poem I really like it doesn't matter if it does well or not if I really like it that's going in the book and if there's one I don't really like at all but it suddenly does really well on Twitter still it's not going in the book but then there's that area in between and it's definitely influenced what I what I've used you know if I'm not sure about something then I think okay well let's let's give it to the public let's <laughs> let's see what they think
1: right yeah, yeah, I can, I can relate to that. I mean, um, I, I, what I do is I, I try to make sure that whatever the idea is in the in the piece, or whatever the uh, the impulse, the uh, the thing that I, I'm trying to create, I, I I try to do that in as as clear and as powerful and as straightforward a fashion as I possibly can, so that the idea has a, or that the work has a, a maximal chance, like you maximize its chances of uh, of. Uh, and creating an impact of some kind but once you've done that i think the the rest is really up to the audience to to determine um so uh you know you try to try to give it the best possible circumstances of birth and give it a you know a kind of a red carpet type of situation present it as well as you can and then then you see what happens um and uh I'm I'm very often surprised (laughs) by what happens.
0: Yeah. No artist's personal favorite work of theirs is the most popular.
1: Yeah, I I think that, I think that's true. Um, I wouldn't say that the pieces that have been particularly, particularly successful have have then made me think, oh, well uh, I'll try to do more things in this direction. And I think once again, that connects to a a, a difference between poetry and music, which is in, in the sense that the, 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 the lag in terms of publication is is much longer, or, or public dissemination, let's say, is much longer in music uh, than than it tends to be in poetry. So what I mean by that is, uh, and, and in my case, that lag has sometimes been quite extreme. So uh, uh, the first few years that I was living in Paris, I wrote a series of pieces that were completely utopian in almost every respect of their production. Uh, instrumentation uh, you know the the difficulty the complexity of the piece uh, the amount of rehearsal time that they would require and so on and the instruments that I would use uh, these these were pieces that uh, in, in all practicality had slim to no chance of actually being performed especially in the circumstances that I was in at the time which was a completely unknown sort of penniless composer living in Paris uh, very few contacts it's like well (laughs) but um but i wrote them anyway with the thinking the hope that eventually it would become possible for them to be played and you hope of course that that eventually will be sooner rather than later but you're willing to to take a a gamble on that in the case of some of those pieces i was waiting eight years ten years before they were actually finally made public um so that is a very, very substantial lag between, you know, the, the time when you're actually working on the thing to when it actually achieves some kind of public dissemination. That's it, it's really much too long. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want that to be the case. It's just that's how it happened. Uh, even today, I mean, in what, like all of my pieces now, pretty much with very few exceptions are are commissioned, publicly commissioned or or privately commissioned or whatever it might be. Um, and the, you know, the premiere date is is set usually a couple of years ahead of when I start working on it. Um, so it's, it's much more highly professionalized than it would have been 15 years ago or more. But even there, I mean, the lag between when I'm working on something and when it finally is performed and recorded and published, it's going to be several years usually. And that's a frustrating thing. If you're an artist and you have the sensation that your work is evolving, quickly you're excited with what you're working on you want people to hear it right away and you and you can't you have to wait three years like imagine if you wrote a poem and you had to wait three years before you could post, post it on twitter, twitter. <laughs> <You> know, like, <laughs> <laughs> so, well that's,
0: that's another way twitter's changed things i mean i i would find it very difficult uh well i would i think i find that difficult anyway that that sort of time scale but especially now having had the experience of being able to write something and and just think Okay, let's see what people think. Let's let's throw it out there. Now that I've been able to do that, I mean, I don't I don't really send poems to journals anymore because I can't I can't wait a month for the response. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, there's there's not much I can do in, in that in that direction because the, the way that I work, I mean, the, the, I write instrumental music and it has to be performed and rehearsed and and then in order to have a recording that I would want to share—it has to be reasonably well performed and rehearsed, uh, and then it has to be recorded. And all of this takes time and money, and and so on, and resources, and a lot of planning. Uh, so I, like, what I can do is I can I can sort of share snapshots of the creative process, which on the uh, I'm a little bit um, torn about that because on the one hand I'm very reticent to show anything less than a finished work. Uh, but at the same time, I acknowledge that there there is a level of public interest in the in sort of creative process. Like, uh, like my, my most successful tweets and uh, Instagram posts and all of those sorts of things, uh, without exception, it's always a snapshot of a, of a manuscript or of a work in progress. Uh, those will get a three to four fold increase in uh, in uh, there is sort of statistic numbers. Uh, I don't exactly understand why that is, but um, but uh, but there there seems to be interest, so I, I occasionally keep doing it, and that is one thing that I can do that is relatively instantaneous. I'll I'll be sitting down working at a, on a manuscript, and I'll just take a shot of the of the page, post it, and then I- instantly get people commenting on it, and <laughs> that that's kind of uh, kind of interesting.
0: It's important to uh, be seen to be active, I think. I I took a not not even quite a week off twitter recently and I lost about 20 followers in that week really <laughs> Just because I wasn't active yeah <laughs> that's my fickle public <laughs> that's
1: appalling <laughs>
0: bastards <laughs> yeah it's you have to you have to I think prove to people that you are constantly doing things that you you're still relevant you're still creating any small thing you can do that shows that's just you waving saying look hi i'm still here
1: yeah yeah i think it it, it might be even more crucial in my case just because the amount of time that it takes to complete a project and then and for for that project to 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 be made public is substantial and it's it's like way out of step with the uh the sort of time frame of social media that's for sure like you you can't (laughs) you can't people hold people's attention over the course of the four years that it might take to you know from from the initial idea the initial con- conception for a piece to when it's it's actually made fully available
0: i you thought about writing things specifically for twitter
1: like you could just do a
0: a, well, a 20 second miniature for example something that would take you a few minutes to write and you could just say this is the kind of thing i do
1: yeah uh, i i have thought about that but it's 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 very difficult to square with my practice. Where uh, see the problem is with, with what I'm doing, uh, even even a twenty second clip. You know that could take me a a, a day. <laughs> that could take me a full workday, uh, depending on what it was. Uh, I'm I'm not ma- again I'm not making any claims as to the quality, but the level of um, trying to think of the word okay there's there's a word in French exigence that it perfectly expresses what I'm trying to say there's, there's no there's no exact equivalent I suppose it means the the demands that you're making the the level that you're setting uh, the um, yeah, how high you set the bar, let's say. What what you're expecting of yourself is I I place that level extremely high. So uh, it makes it hard to to whip off something in twenty seconds. Um, partly because if the level of effort and and intensity of engagement is not set at a very high level, it's hard for me to hold my interest. So I, I don't know that I would be interested enough to want to do something. Uh, to, to want to make something public that I that I would be capable of doing in, in 10 minutes, let's say. Uh, mm. But I have, I have a great deal of, uh, of respect for artists who are able to do that and able to produce things that are compelling in that manner. So, for example, um, a painter I really like is Robert Motherwell, who's one of the uh, abstract expressionists. Uh, and uh, he created a, a long series of paintings called The Lyric Suite, uh, which he made on Japanese paint, uh, Japanese paper, and he discovered that when you paint uh, on on Japanese paper, there's a very high level of of bleed. Like the ink will will bleed into the the paper, and so it it's it's very difficult to control that the spread of the ink once you've done that, once you've made a mark. Uh, and he would make these gestural paintings uh, that are, I think, incredibly beautiful. But like these are things that he would make in the space of maybe twenty seconds. Like there might be two or three lines, uh, done in a very particular way with certain colors, certain gestures, and then that's it. You can't change it afterwards. You can't modify it. You can't control the spread of ink. It, it produces what it produces. And there it is. It's this, it's this like little, uh, in, infinitely slim, infinitely slender little moment of time that's been sort of captured and, and turned into this, uh, this little fleeting expression. He was very good at that. Uh, and uh, made hundreds of these, and they're they're really exquisite little paintings. That uh, that's something that I've, I'm I'm not able to do. It's never been compatible with my approach, neither in poetry, in the books of poetry I've published, or in the uh, in the in the music that I write. Everything is uh, just enormously labor intensive. Just costs me thousands of hours, untold thousands of hours of of work to to produce something. Uh, that's just how it is I, it's I'm neither you know positive or negative on that question it's uh, it seems to be somehow intrinsic to the nature of what i do
0: and it's interesting so i always think people need some sort of freedom to go with the constraints like i'm kind of i i write very impulsively and i decide i'm going to do something and i sit there for hours and working on it and then and then i'm spent and i get drunk Uh, (laughs) you seem to be very methodical in in every aspect of your work uh
1: yeah i read a book uh a few years ago by uh, david foster wallace called the pale king uh it was it was actually the book he was working on when he died and uh, it's a novel and um what it's about, I actually, I have to say, I read very few novels, <laughs> but I did read this one, and I really liked it. And it's it's about a group of accountants, uh, and it's it's a it's a very peculiar book in many respects because he, he takes the the most deliberately boring sub- subject matter imaginable and, and turns it into this sort of riveting meditation on uh, on meaning and and human purpose, and uh, it's it's an incredibly interesting book. Uh, and one of the things he he does is he he demonstrates that through the, the sort of setting up of these uh, very highly circumscribed uh, tasks that are very specific and then their meticulous fulfillment through, you know, wh- whatever it might be, the you know, the highly conscientious uh, filling out of a particular tax form and the knowledge of this incredibly complicated tax uh, code, let's say, uh, and all of the, the tools of the trade and how all of this is done and the Sort of type of person is sort of type of highly conscientious, highly structured person that you would need in order to fulfill this uh, type of uh, job year after year. Uh, there's a, a kind of a tremendous dignity in that. Um it's it's, a, it's, a, it's an odd book in many respects. I really enjoyed it. And that really resonated with me in in some respects because I really see myself as an accountant in a certain respect, uh, as a uh, a person who, Uh, exercises a profession and who works in a a sort of meticulously organized studio uh, according to set hours and attempts at least to bring to bear a kind of analytical precision, surgical precision uh, and intensity of focus to what they're doing as though it were on a level with uh, carrying out some kind of complicated neurosurgery. You know, like the, in other words, there are, there are real stakes involved. Uh, you don't want to mess up the piece. Uh, it would be very bad for the world if, if the piece did not get born properly the way it's meant to. Uh, and, and someone who single-mindedly focuses every day on this job and does it as well as they can. And that—that's—that's that's the sort of person that I try to be. And uh, but
0: at the same time, there's your your music and your poetry, definitely. Uh, there's a, a huge sense of fun in there. I don't get the feeling you're taking yourself very seriously all the time.
1: Well, there's a there's a there's a quote I really like. Um, it's from a 19th-century French poet, and I, I can't at this hour remember exactly who it was. It might have been Mallarmé. It might have. It might have been someone else. Uh, along the lines that, you know, it's 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 a good thing to aspire to be, kind of boring and um, predictable, and regular. In in terms of the sort of external trappings of your life, so that you can be completely wild and Insane and free and unhinged in your creative work Uh, And I think there's a lot to be said for that now what he specifically meant by this I I believe was you know Aim for a bourgeois lifestyle Uh, You have a house you're married uh, You have a kind of a a settled uh, private life and you don't have to sort of worry about those things they're they're sort of they're they're in place and then once you've got this sort of bourgeois facade and you wear a suit and all that kind of thing, and, and you, uh, then you can create this completely insane uh, artwork. Uh, that, uh, that, that idea I've always actually found quite appealing, <laughs> where you have the a kind of external appearance of sort of regularity, responsibility, and uh, um, uh, reliability. And then uh, on the inside, it's like this this molten flow of one insane idea after the other. I, I love the yeah. I love the contrast between those two things. I find I find it doesn't work very well to pursue a uh, a, a chaotic, uh, bohemian, unhinged life. I don't know. Try to think about my
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> my, my life. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that felt like a lecture, Samuel. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's all in good fun. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, th- this is a question of temperament, but something something always resonated in me like the figure of the, the sort of professional wearing a lab coat uh, who would be in the lab at, at eight o'clock in the morning you know with their with their clipboard, <laughs> you know, uh, and their spotless shoes and so on and, and working on a complicated problem and then and then going home uh, somehow, I really like that idea. So there well, you have
0: I've it. I've said that I'm a I ended up as a poet because I'm I'm a, a failed rock star and a failed scientist. So <laughs> I understand that. <laughs> I put those two things together.
1: <laughs> yeah. So uh, a lot of these things are, are irreducible. It's it's a it's a product of your of your personality and your inclinations, I suppose. Mm. But I, I'm i glad anyway, I'm very flattered to hear that you think that the work projects a sense of fun, because I find it incredibly fun to do, uh, so I hope that some of that c- comes across. Uh, if if the work itself were ever to appear, were ever to be seen as being in, so, in some manner formulaic or boring or, or repetitive, uh, then I, I would really rather do something else
0: and i think I think again, you've done a tweet recently about a lot a lot of contemporary music being or not having enough of a sense of fun,
1: oh yeah, I, that that's a that's a huge problem in the in the contemporary music world. it It does tend to take itself incredibly seriously. It's one thing to take yourself incredibly seriously if uh, if you are burdened with a tremendous responsibility and if the the actions that you undertake uh, in, within your field have gigantic and far-reaching consequences. It's another thing altogether to take yourself seriously if you're one of 200,000 composers uh, sort of uh, trying to e- eke out a living in the sort of bottom ranks of the profession, uh, you know, getting uh, getting an opportunity here or there when you can uh, and, and producing work that has very little Public impact. <laughs> if you see what I mean, it's like if, if that's the situation, then you you might as well try to have some fun and and do things like it's like you you, you have to figure you don't have that much to lose, so you might as well take some risks, enjoy yourself, and uh, and see what happens. Um, so uh, taking myself overly seriously just uh, doesn't 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 enter into that, and I, I'm certainly I'm, I'm well aware of the. The marginal nature of a lot of what I do. Also, the fact that this is uh, objectively strange sounding work to a lot of people, I realize that. So at least you've got
0: poetry to fall
1: back on. <laughs> yeah, exa- exactly. <laughs> if it doesn't work, if it doesn't work out with the poetry, uh, <laughs> with the music. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a hilarious uh, comment by Leonard Cohen, uh, who had published a number of novels and and poetry collections uh, throughout his twenties and thirties that failed to attract much of a readership. I think he was in uh, you know very desperate financial circumstances by that point. And he's all he, he joked about the fact that he he attempted to uh, solve his professional dilemma as a as a poet by becoming a folk singer. <laughs> you know, it, it, given that he couldn't really sing and couldn't really play the guitar, it's like uh, that, that was the best uh, career move that he could think of. And as, as it turns out, it was wildly yeah, successful, well, but it was just, <laughs> it, it actually worked. <laughs> yeah. But that was, that was not the expected outcome.
0: <laughs> we, we haven't talked about you as the poet that much. You are still, you're still writing poetry. It's Absolutely. Really, when, when, was, when was the last, what year was it, the last book?
1: The last book came out in 2015.
0: So we're five, five years in to your work on a new one. How close is it to being completed?
1: I'm not sure it can be completed. Uh, I think that what is likelier to happen is the work will be abandoned and published in a, uh, a provisional state. Because the nature of the project is such that uh, completion is a, uh, an unlikely outcome. I'm not even sure it's a a viable goal. And this has been a natural progression in the writing I've done over the past 10 years or so, uh, sort of tending more towards that direction. When I started this new project, I had the idea that with extreme effort, I could still pull it together into something resembling a a coherent, uh, finished uh, uh, book. Uh, As I advance with this project, I'm starting to... Have doubts as to whether that's in fact possible.
0: Well, I hope you finish it. <laughs> I'll, oh, I'll, I'll, I like what I've read of it so far. Like, uh, it, does, it, do, it doesn't. Should exist.
1: It, it doesn't mean I'll never publish it. It just means that when it, it does get published, it, it may be in a uh, a, 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 a sort of visibly uh, unfinished form. Or it'll be a massive torso or fragment.
0: And. Uh, and what are you working on now, music-wise? Is there anything you want to plug? Uh,
1: well, I have a new CD, actually, that just came out. Uh, there we are. <laughs> a few days ago, yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's... Well, it's new and it isn't new. It's it's a new CD. It's a, it's a new recording, but some of the pieces on there are uh, 18 years old. <laughs> so it's it's a strange thing for me uh, to, to have... Uh, things that, that go, back, go back fairly far in my output be released as though for the first time and people are discovering them for the first time. Uh, but that's how it has gone for me as, a, as, a, as an artist. I mean, there are, there are very significant uh, time lags in, in my production a lot of the time. Um, so that's, that's out. I'm very, very proud of this CD, very pleased with it. I hope a lot of people hear it. It's called Iridescent Notation and it was released by Kairos out of Vienna. And that will be available worldwide uh, as a physical CD, but also uh, widely available on, uh, on Spotify, iTunes, and Apple Music, and other platforms. And uh, besides that, I am struggling to complete a, uh, a major orchestral piece. Um, it's a violin concerto. And this was a piece that I actually finished a first version of in 2018. And that first version already cost me a year of effort wasn't happy with it, and I uh, set back to work on it, completely rewrote it. It's now a substantially i think a substantially better piece. it's also quite new um, and I've had to spend eight months on the second version of that piece. so uh, if all goes according to plan, it will be performed in September and recorded shortly thereafter
0: Samuel, we've been talking for two and a half hours this is this might have to be a two part podcast <laughs> But it's it's always good talking to you. So I don't know how I'm going to edit this down to anything thing. <laughs> I'll manage uh, it. I'll I'll figure it out.
1: You, you've been you've been uh, incredibly patient and indulgent with my uh, with my ramblings, and uh, I, as ever, appreciate the uh, the platform and uh, your willingness to have me on. I really appreciate that. To discover more, visit us at pentritepress